Hello and welcome to the Do One Better podcast in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi from London. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find this show as well. Today, it's an absolute pleasure to welcome onto the show Priya Naik, founder and chief executive officer of Samhita. Samhita are based in India, and they aim to tackle a range of challenges from skills and livelihoods to social inclusion and gender. Uh, they partnered with some of the world's best known companies, such as Unilever, Google, Kimberly Clark, and received initial funding from truly big philanthropic outfits, such as the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation and the Amidyar Network. They embrace an ecosystem mindset, whereby they not just collaborate with individual partners, but also, interestingly, collaborate with other collectives and conveners. So I'm very excited for today's chat, and without further ado, Priya, a big heartfelt welcome onto the Do One Better podcast today. Thank you, Alberto, and it's such a pleasure to be here. I have been looking at the rest of your work and so delighted to be here. Uh, well, it's an absolute pleasure, and thank you for making the time. I know we're overcoming a little bit of time difference. You're out there in India. I'm here in the UK, so thank you for that. And um, why don't we start by finding out what Samhita is all about? So Samhita means collective good, right? It means that uh, when we impact people uh, and we work with institutions, and there's so many of them, that everyone needs to benefit. Um, so we do two things. We work with some of India's largest foundations and companies and help them really maximize their social and environmental impact. Uh, and then we also create... Um, these multi-stakeholder platforms to solve wicked problems, right? Because we truly believe that collaboration is really the only way to solve complex challenges such as education or women's economic empowerment and climate change. So we sit in the middle of the private sector, the philanthropic ecosystem, the government, financial institutions, startups, academic institutes, uh, and we ensure that each and every one of our stakeholders is really maximizing their strengths and their competencies, but collectively um, trying to solve these extremely difficult, high-resource challenges, right, that uh, we're surrounded with, and particularly in a country like India. And your origins, how long have you guys been around, and how big are you, or how many people are there? Yeah, we're uh, about 13 years old. We're a small organization. Uh, but we have big ambitions, right? So we've impacted about 15 million people so far. Uh, we're now looking to irreversibly increase incomes of 10 million workers and entrepreneurs. Uh, and we're able to do that with a small team of 80 because we're inherently a highly collaborative organization. So we partner extensively, like I said, with the private, public, and philanthropic sector. Uh, and a lot of our impact is catalyzed just because of these amazing partnerships that we're able to create and um, really nurture and scale. I've noticed some of the partners you have are really big players, uh, Unilever, Kimberly Clark, even on the corporate side, a, a, a lot of names that uh, that are household names uh, across the globe. That's correct. And, um, you know, what's amazing about these organizations are, in, in, you know, Unilever in particular, right? These are organizations that have sold. And so, yes, they are in every single household uh, across India, just because of the products that they sell and the reach that they have. But they're also organizations with a mission to create real change. And so I think we are constantly inspired by um, all of these fantastic organizations like Unilever or Kimberly Clark or, or 
Um, you know, we work with a whole bunch of financial institutions, Google, Microsoft, LinkedIn, and a whole bunch of others, right? Uh, who really want to solve these complex problems and understand that the only way to do it is really collaboratively and using their resources and their networks in the most catalytic manner. Um, so really fortunate to be co-creating a lot of these solutions with the private sector. Yeah. You mentioned not just the key partners, but you also touched on platforms. You're creating these platforms. Um, what do they look like? What um, Give us a little bit of insight into that side of things. Yeah, so, um, you know, about three years ago when we were staring at COVID um, and, you know, looking at both the healthcare challenges and the livelihood challenges, we said this is a problem that's beyond uh, any of us individually or even us as sort of institutions, right? Um, and so that's sort of when we said collaboration is the key. And let me give you an example of, uh, of, of a platform that we're running. Uh, it's called Revive, and Revive really was born out of all of those horrifying images of migrants that we saw um, just going back to their to their villages because, you know, we as a country had failed to create safety nets, um, you know, whether it's in terms of their employment or their livelihoods or their healthcare. So Revive uh, aims to, like I said, irreversibly increase incomes of 10 million workers and entrepreneurs. And let me just unpack that a little bit, right? Why do we care about workers and entrepreneurs? Because they form the backbone of our economy. These are farmers and carpenters and masons and, you know, truck drivers and vegetable vendors and salon owners, right? Um, these are people because of whom our lives are better. Why income? Because ultimately that's what they care about. Why irreversible? Because we went through a pandemic and that was one crisis that changed us all. But the reality is that for a lot of of these individuals, they have a crisis every few months. And every few months, they have to pick themselves back up and get back into the workforce and provide for their family. And so we said that it's unacceptable um, that individuals have to get one opportunity, right? They need to get many, many, many opportunities. So they can not just fight the poverty that they come from, but really have a viable shot at prosperity. So here's what we do. We collaborate extensively with the government, with the private sector, with financial institutions, uh, with philanthropic organizations, and we bring every kind of resource that is required to increase incomes and provide opportunities to these 10 million workers and entrepreneurs. So let me just quickly give you a few examples. 92% uh, of India's workforce is in the informal ecosystem, which means 92% of people go to work every day without having a standard labor contract or knowing that their wages will be paid in their bank accounts or having any kind of a social safety net. Um, these are individuals who don't know whether they're going to progress in their career. They don't know whether they're going to have a job the next day. And so one of the key missions is to ensure that we are rapidly supporting the formalization of this 92% of India's workforce. The second thing is that a large proportion of Indians, in spite of all of the fabulous work that the government has done uh, to drive rapid financial inclusion, remain squarely out of the formal financial ecosystem. Banks are willing to lend to you know, the many tens of millions of nano, micro, sol solo entrepreneurs because they don't have a bank account. They don't have collateral. They don't have a digital footprint of their income. And so 
we have now innovated many, many, many different products. And I'll talk about two of them very briefly. Um, so in the middle of the pandemic, we realized that a lot of people who had lost their livelihoods just needed money. They needed money to get back on their feet. So we introduced something that's fairly simple. It's common across the world. It's called a returnable grant. It's a zero interest, zero collateral instrument, which allows an individual to do whatever with it, right? I can get upskilled and find a new job. I can use it as working capital to grow my business. I can use it as seed capital to start a new business. And we gave 30,000 of these returnable grants um, to all kinds of people, farmers, artisans, uh, micro contractors, um, women who ran tiny salons. And remember, this is the middle of the pandemic, right? And India had one of the harshest lockdowns across the world. And we thought, well, maybe 5% people will pay back, maybe 10%, maybe 15%, right? Um, what we saw, and we've seen this consistently across 30,000 individuals and 29 different partners, we've seen 97% repayment rates. These are people who went through the toughest times in their lives. These are people who did not have to pay the money back and still chose to do so consistently year after year, right? And so we're now scaling up the returnable grant as a mechanism to support individuals who otherwise would not qualify for any kind of bank financing. And banks actually took notice of this. So when we went to financial institutions, we said, here are 30,000 people who otherwise you would not lend to but they paid the money back in spite of there being a legal contract. And aren't you now interested in them? And the answer was overwhelmingly yes. So we're doing two cool things. One, we are working with banks and NBFCs and a whole bunch of Indian regulators to co-create a pre-credit score. Um, so the rest of us, for example, have a credit score, right? Because we have a bank account and we have credit cards, but the poor have no such identity or no such sort of rating mechanism. And so we are working with banks to create alternative mechanisms to really rate the ability of a borrower to take and repay credit, right? It will be game-changing uh, the, from the financial ecosystem's perspective to really lend to the poor. And the third thing that we're doing is we are creating what will become India's largest uh, first-loss default guarantee facility to primarily support new-to-credit and new-to-income segments. Lots of credit guarantees have been done worldwide and in India, but they primarily focus on micro-entrepreneurs and not necessarily on the solo nano-entrepreneur who today um, is unable to get any kind of credit uh, from formal financial institutions. So we're doing all of this innovation to ensure that the poor have access to affordable credit which is customized to their needs and are delivered ideally digitally um, into their bank accounts in a way that the simplest of phones can be used to really access this credit. And they can use it seamlessly to really improve their businesses. So one is formalization. The second is access to credit. We're also ensuring that all of our 10 million workers and entrepreneurs and their families have access to every government scheme that they're eligible for. The Indian government, similar to many governments, have announced many such mechanisms to support the poor, but the reality is they don't reach the last mile. And so today we have partnerships with the Common Service Center and Proteins to ensure that all of the Indians that we support um, have access to these government schemes. We're also ensuring 
that all of our 10 million people have access to savings, investments, and insurance. Because if they're not able to save and they're not able to invest, they can't grow their income. And otherwise, the next income shock is going to hit them. So that's that's really fascinating stuff. Some of the some of the questions that that come to mind with regards to digital literacy, and also the aspect of gender. You know, and I know that having to do with social norms, property rights, and different bits and pieces. So tell us a little bit about those ten million individuals uh, and the challenges posed by digital literacy and and gender. Yeah, those are great questions, Alberto. And actually, the next intervention is actually digital tools and literacy. Um, simply because, again, I think India is making a lot of investments in ensuring that every single individual is sort of digitally um, empowered. Um, so here's what we're doing, right? We're saying, yes, everyone needs to know just the basic norms of how do you use internet? How do you do banking? And so we're spending a lot of time and effort and really partnering with organizations like Google, Microsoft, LinkedIn to ensure that we're building the basic base of digital literacy. But we're also customizing these tools. What a farmer needs to really understand in terms of just weather patterns or crop patterns, right? And get access to all of those agricultural inputs um, that are digitally empowered now seem very different from, let's say, an artisan who wants to sell her products on Amazon. And so we're customizing digital solutions for all of these 10 million people. And then the, the question of gender is a very, very important one, right? Because India um, actually suffered because today only 19% of women are in the workforce. And that is sort of astoundingly bad for a country such as ours, when traditionally from an education perspective, women are outperforming men. And yet you're seeing this sharp drop, right? Um, and so between 50 to 75% of the 10 million workers and entrepreneurs will be women. And we are consciously focusing on them. So even as we think about the industries, right, we're focusing on apparel, beauty and wellness, gems and jewelry, healthcare, um, food, uh, because these are industries that are primarily dominated by women, right? And we want to ensure that not only are we bringing more women into the workplace, but we are creating the right conditions to get them to thrive and succeed. Um, and we're very cognizant of the fact that across all of the barriers that I talked about, access to finance, access to digital inclusion, government social security, skills, enterprise development, I mean, women are just um, so far behind men. And so everything that we do is not just gender focused, but it's gender intentional. Um, so we co-create programs that are designed specifically for women. The returnable grant that I talked about. Uh, was primarily designed for women because they don't have the collateral, the bank accounts, the kinds of identity documents that men have. Our choice of partners is intentional. So we work with Save Our Mandeshi, um, Tissar, women, I mean, you know, very, very strong women-focused organizations. Our theory of change is built on the fact that women need multiple interventions at multiple points in time in their lives, right? A woman coming into the workforce at 20 has very different challenges and opportunities uh, from when she's 25 and getting married and 27 when she's having her first child. And then she has to be, you know, not just somebody responsible for childcare, but also is looking after, you know, elders in her family. And so very cognizant of the fact that women's journey in the workforce is not linear. 
She may come in as an employee. She may decide to become a gig worker. She may drop out and she may come back as an entrepreneur. And so one of the things that we're doing with Revive is we're focusing on every individual and providing these multiple interventions over many, many, many years so that at any point in time, if a woman feels compelled to leave the workforce, A, she has the opportunities to not leave, but then she also has the opportunities to come back and come back better and stronger and more equipped. You know, thinking about gender in terms of um, how we design programs, how we support her. And, and let me just tell you two stories. Um, in the middle of the pandemic, and I want to go back to the returnable grant, we saw women consistently outperforming men. And so at the very beginning, uh, we went to a set of women and we went to a set of men and we said, here's a thousand, here's a hundred dollars. Um, what would you like to do with hundred dollars? And women came back and said, Oh my God, don't give me a hundred dollars. Give me 50. And we said, why? And they said, because we're not confident in this moment that, you know, we will be able to do justice with your $50. I mean, we're talking about $50 here, right? We went to men and we said, here is $100. And they said, what? What am I supposed to do with 100? You know, give me 300. Um, and we consistently found that women use the money far more carefully, more judiciously, primarily for um, enterprise development work and consistently paid back in time. And um, in the middle of the second wave, we had women who paid back 103%. Now, the second wave of COVID was debilitating for India. It came back with a vengeance. And every woman that I spoke with, you know, just had these heartbreaking stories. And when we called them and we said, oh, why in God's name are you giving back 103%? They told us, when you gave us the money, we were a recipient. When we gave back the money, we're a donor, right? And Alberto, I'm thinking, this is the worst moment in this woman's life. And where is she finding the generosity of spirit to think about others, place somebody else who she doesn't know before her needs? And oh my God, her needs are extreme, right? And so again and again, we found that women don't need charity. They just need opportunity. And when they in that they outperform their own, you know, constraints and ambitions and any other ambitions we have for them. I am just so consistently amazed um, by the stories that we've seen of the 200,000 people we've impacted so far. And I'm so excited about the 10 million that we're going to impact. Great, great. And tell me a little bit about Revive and how it came about. Uh, you touched on, you used the word co-creation as well a, a little bit earlier. And uh, and so in, in, in relation to the partners and how you go about it and the, and the multifaceted aspect of, of Revive, uh, give us a little bit of insight into how it came to be, um, the design stage, the co-creation, um, the understanding of, of what, the the context requires whether it's gender whether it's the the psychology and and uh, mindset as you touched on a little bit earlier what did it all look like to to from from concept to to reality and alberto let me kind of take you back to three years ago right so very much at this point you know we were going through a lockdown and the first thing that we did and you know i used many years ago i used to be at the poverty action lab um this is jay pal and Abhijit Banerjee and Esther Duflo, who set it up, uh, won the Nobel Prize. 
And they were in every single newspaper three years ago saying, do direct cash transfers, just put money in the hands of the poor, right? Don't ask questions about how they're using it. Just give them money. And so Revive started with us supporting 33,000 people. These were street vendors and farmers and Uber drivers who had lost their jobs and factory workers who had gone back. And we just put money into the bank accounts of these 33,000 people. And we called them up and we said, well, what does the future look like? And they said, well, we don't know. We know that, you know, our lives have been upturned. But when we come back, you know, we may want to go back to the same jobs and maybe we want to have better jobs. We may want to have better skill sets. And, you know, people who are workers now want to become entrepreneurs and people who were in these, you know, horribly crowded urban metros no longer want to go back to that employment and they want to start, um, you know, new entrepreneurial ventures of their own in, in villages. And so I think the, there were two things we, we learned, right? One, that there was hope and optimism and just this desire to bounce back because, oh God, they needed to, right? And the second is that no single individual story was the same. Everyone had different aspirations. And so we knew that when we, when we have to respond to their needs, it cannot be one size fits all. We have to customize to their context and their age and their aspirations and their interests. So Revive started out saying, let's try and throw everything we have at the problem, right? Let's provide skills, let's provide access to finance, savings and investments and insurance. And so uh, we brought every single intervention that you can think about to really increase incomes. The second thing that we realized is, you know, the social sector is very good at point in time intervention. Somebody doesn't have a job, let's, you know, give them skills, help them find a job, and then they're on their own. Uh, but what happens to this person? Maybe they don't like the job, right? Maybe they want to acquire better skill sets. Maybe they want a different job. Well, where are we when they're making those decisions? We're not there, right? Because we believe our work is done. So the fundamental um, decision that we made is that we are going to support every person over multiple years with multiple interventions. Now, the question was, and you asked about partners, can a single partner provide that, right? If we were a partner with Google, can and should Google support digital literacy and digital safety, but should they also provide access to finance and should they also provide better skill sets and should they also provide jobs? The answer is no. And so Alberta, what we did is we went to many, many, many types of private sector organizations, right? So we went to banks and we said, how can we co-create solutions so that the person at the last mile has access to savings and investments and insurance, but these are bite-sized and these are customized based on their needs. And by the way, banks, we know that it is not profitable for you to reach this person at the last mile because it's expensive and it's high risk. So what can we do to reduce your costs so that it's profitable for you to support these 10 million people, right? And we built amazing partnerships with nonprofits and the government and private sector to ensure that we're able to source these candidates at competitive rates so that banks can lend to them. Then banks said, well, we're not sure. These seem to be very high risk because they're informal and therefore the credit guarantee and therefore the, the returnable grant. So lots of innovation to ensure that banks are able to provide digital and financial literacy, but also offer financial products. Then we went to 
you know, large garment manufacturers and lots of factories. And we said, well, are you seeing people who are either out of work? And we have this amazing partner called Arvind. Um, and Arvind is one of India's largest garment manufacturers. And they said, you know, we may have to, to um, really lay people off, but we don't want to do that. Can we instead partner with you to give them better skill sets so they can find other jobs? And Alberto, can you believe this, right? This is when Arvind is again going through an economic downturn. And here is a company which is saying, can I support the set of people that I unfortunately have to lay off and can I make sure that they get better jobs? And then Arvind came back and, you know, they didn't actually have to lay off a whole bunch of people. And they said, we want to build their skill sets and we want to prepare them for the next job. So we partnered with a whole bunch of other organizations to again partner with Arvind to say, but can a bank provide financial literacy and can the government provide social security schemes and can Google empower Arvind's workers to be digitally illiterate? And can we get LinkedIn to provide alternate jobs and mentorship support? So we really had the private sector opening up their ecosystem to enable other private sector organizations to support their stakeholders. And remember, everyone wins. Arvind has more productive, better empowered workers. Google now has a set of people who are using digital skills to be better at their jobs. The banks have somebody who are able to save and invest because they have a steady salary. And the government now is able to deliver government schemes at a really low cost rate because Arvind has opened up their factories. So we, you know, partnered extensively with a lot of private sector organizations. And we did the same with nonprofits and we did the same with the government. And I think the, the one superpower that we seem to have is to A, focus on the customized needs of these 10 million people. B, to really formulate these win-win partnerships with the private sector, with the government, with financial institutions in a way that, you know, everyone wins, right? They're businesses are thriving, they're able to address the needs of their sort of most marginalized stakeholders, and that we're able to innovate rapidly and creatively with all of these organizations. And the last thing I want to say is, you know, ultimately resources are limited, right? And the need is large and constantly expanding. And so we always want to be catalytic. We want philanthropy to do the most with every dollar that they can put on the table. So a last example which is we partnered with USAID and MSTF and UNDP and Omidyar Network and um, the British High Commission and, and like amazing set of foundations. And just to give you a sense, right, um, a lot of these foundations saw a 10, 15, 50x multiple in terms of the money that they put in. So a small grant from USAID or the British High Commission enabled us to unlock 50 times the resources from banks and the private sector to then reach um, a set of people at scale. So the one thing that you know we really pride ourselves in doing is to take the strengths of every partner that we work with and bring it all together to create the maximum impact that we can deliver to communities um, that need that support. And we'll take that opportunity and do amazing things with it. Was the um, in, in terms of the partners, was the first partner or the first set of partners the most difficult to secure to get on board? And I'm asking because I imagine with the, the wide range of, um, of sectors that you're, you're bringing together these days, it's probably easier and easier to get that next one on board, right? 
Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the, the Michael and Susan Dell Foundation and Omidyar Network were the first set of partners for Revive. And they were so excited about the returnable grant because this was a new instrument. And just so you know, the returnable grant, because of the way it works, enables us to take $10 and impact not one person, but 10 people, right? Because it keeps revolving. And so Omidyar and MSDF helped us put the foundational pieces of the returnable grant. And because they were there and it was their credibility and their networks that enabled us to get USAID in and then the British High Commission and UNDP. And then a whole bunch of other private sector partners came in because a lot of the initial foundational costs of setting up the collaboration, of innovation, of partnership building uh, were really paid for by these you know, phenomenal foundations. And therefore, when Google came in and Microsoft came in and S&P Global came in, um, you know, they found that we were able to focus entirely on the strengths that they brought or the stakeholders that they wanted to focus on, right? So Alberto, we found that a set of partners who are agnostic and that allow you to build these platforms and invest in the foundational building blocks um, then enable us to go and find these private sector partners who can and you know absolutely should be focused on their stakeholders and their strengths. And then it also allows us to bring in financial institutions who are very cognizant of their risks and costs and use that philanthropic capital to defray those risks, right? And then bring in government because you know government um, is this large um, you know force. And it has a lot of advantages, but you need a lot of this other stuff to be in place before you can respond to the government's need to deliver services at scale. So we've done this slowly, but surely, and you're exactly right, that the first few partners were, um, you know, it was hard to ensure that we're getting just perfect convergence. Um, but the next and the next partner has been so easy. That's great. And it's certainly a vote of confidence if you get the likes of Dell and Media Network to 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 support you. That uh, that sends, I think, the right signals to to a lot of people, both in the not for profit and the um, and the for profit space. Couple couple of questions that that come up. Um, one is in terms of collaborating with with other really remarkable organizations, uh, collectives, for instance, in, in India, uh, bringing together. I notice there's a lot of collaboration happening in India, not only evident from the guests that I've had on the show before, but just in general from knowing what's going on in the landscape. So if I'm thinking about the um, the, the the Nudge Institute, if I'm thinking about the NASCOM Foundation, if I'm thinking about DASRA, um, different outfits that that seem to be pulling really interesting resources and stakeholders together to to achieve social good, and then the follow up from that, just tying it up, is the aspect of climate. And climate goes hand in hand with livelihoods, and uh, and India is being particularly hard hit, I think, by by the climate crisis. So. Places or organizations like the India Climate Collaborative come to mind as well, or collective. Um, give us a little bit of a flavor for that sort of macro, multi-stakeholder collaboration that you might have with other conveners, other people who are also sort of thinking with an ecosystem mindset. Yeah, that's a great question, Albert. So, you know, I think a lot of us before COVID talked about collaboration as a good thing. And then three years ago, it became... A necessity, right? It wasn't just 
something that was nice to do. And so Nudge and Astra and ASCON Foundation and the India Climate Collaborative all built these alliances. And, you know, we're in deep conversation with all of them, right? Because uh, each intermediary went and, um, you know, put together an ecosystem that was most adjacent to them and an ecosystem that they knew really well. And so just to give you a sense, right, um, we do a lot of work with the private sector. Dasra does a tremendous amount of work with individual philanthropists. So a conversation we're having with them is to say, how can we collaborate with you so that um, individual philanthropy can be a part of these ecosystems that we're building together? Um, the Nudge Foundation is doing outstanding work with the government. And so a conversation with them is to say, how do we you know, now work with you to start providing this technical assistance support. And then a conversation with NASCOM is because a lot of the work that we do is embedded in digital and financial inclusion at scale. And you know those are really the stakeholders that they have brought together. Again, the, the discussion with them is how do we collaborate to be far more innovative um, and design these models at scale, right? So this is sort of a moment in time that I'm just so excited about because we're all leaving our identities and our you know logos and egos behind um, and saying we're in it because of these you know 10 million 100 million 1.3 billion people right uh, who need us and so this is sort of it's been three years of consistently prioritizing um, everybody else and their needs above um, you know any of the constraints that each of us have as institutions so this is a really good time for India and it's intermediaries collaborating. I mean, you know, just to give you a sense, a lot of the NGOs we work with are a hundred times our size, right? And when we went in and we said, hey, by the way, we want you to be collaborative and we want you to collect all of this data. And by the way, everything that we do is tech enabled uh, and we want you to align with this tech. We thought that they're gonna say no way, right? Like we don't need this. And what we heard consistently is they not only said, Yes, of course we will align because this is the need of the hour. And they came back to us and they said, why only 10 million? But, you know, we can do 25. So the fact that we were seeing people who were not um, getting upset with the fact that we were imposing much more stringent, um, you know, monitoring evaluation and learning requirements or governance and compliance requirements or reporting requirements, because the more data we have, the sharper we are in our ability to impact, right? Uh, but not only did they see the value in it, but they were, and they continue to be just so optimistic about changing processes and changing policies and really collaborating at scale, right? Which is not what I was expected, so expecting, mm. so delighted to see. <laughs> How did you, um, a, re a remarkable, um, I, I love the context you provided in terms of how you're all coming together and, and collaborating between different collectives, different collaboratives as well, and how you touched on some of the, the corporate versus individual philanthropist side of things. And I just think that's part of what makes the um, the context in India really vibrant and worth taking a look, irrespective of whether one is based in India or, or elsewhere. Um, what about your personal uh, trajectory to to getting where you are today? Give us a little bit of insight into that uh, that narrative. So, you know, Alberto, I was born in a family which, um, you know, succeeded because of education, right? And um, I think it was very obvious to us from the very beginning that uh, we were lucky to have been born into privilege. And it was just, 
you know, it, it just it could have been very well possible that I could have been born into that slum, which I'm looking at, right, which is right outside my window. Um, and so I think it was it was made clear to us from day one that no matter what we decided to do, that we were always going to be in service of society. And I think that was a it was a good sort of foundational element. Um, and then I, you know, studied and worked in the U.S. and the Middle East and India and by the time I was 25, I had the good fortune of having visited 25 different countries, right? Ghana, Cuba, Senegal, Morocco, um, Nigeria, Cameroon, Bangladesh, right? Sort of countries that, you know, most 20-year-olds don't really go to. And I think what struck me was that we believe that poverty is this one monolithic, um, you know, issue. And then just traveling through those countries, I think, you know, the realization of broadly two things. Poor are, um, you know, just incredible, right? Because of just the day-to-day -day challenges that they go through, they're so resilient. Uh, and they're able to wake up every single morning and, and not just, you know, survive, but really thrive in this extremely difficult life that they have been given. And then the second that, um, you know, to be able to solve these complex problems, um, you know, yes, um, you know, boundaries and context are important, but really collaboration is vital. And so I um, ended up, you know, being many different things. I started life as an accountant. I uh, was a consultant. I worked for the IFC. I worked, um, you know, for the World Bank and a whole bunch of other organizations. I then became a researcher at the Poverty Action Lab. And at MIT, I found myself in this sort of strange situation where I was surrounded by some of the world's most creative, most intelligent, most gifted individuals who wanted to go save the world, but they had not really seen the world. And it was sort of this aha moment to say that uh, because I've just been, you know, plain lucky to have worked at, you know, audit companies and worked in financial institutions and in research organizations and academic institutes, um, that in some sense I had the ability to bring these different worlds together, right? Now, at 25, that doesn't seem like, hey, this is what I'm going to do because there isn't like a job description, right, um, of somebody who's a collaborator. But in some sense, you know, the the way at least I've had the opportunity to shape, some, shape Samitha is to, is to be the smallest possible organization that can work with the largest and most diverse types of institutions to create the most transformative change. Um, and it's, you know, it, like, it just feel blessed um, that I've been given the opportunity, the resources, the partnerships, right, to be able to do that. And it is, I mean, Evans is on this call, uh, but it is because of the teams that I have, the partners I work with, um, the, the 10, 15 million individuals that we've impacted so far, right, that the belief that collaboration, that innovation and the co-creation really is the path to go, I mean, you know, it's hard every day. I, I, it's it's hard to continue believing in it, um, but it's also easy to do so because of all of these amazing people. That's about. great. That's great. Do you have a key takeaway for us? Do you have a one thing that you'd love for the audience to keep in mind after they finish listening to today's episode? I think just the one thing, right? That um, if we are motivated by purpose and whatever that is, right? Whether it's to address climate change or you know, poverty or, you know, work on vaccines or look after stray dogs, whatever that is, right? But I think for every individual to find, nurture, really chase their passion and purpose. Uh, because I feel like, um, 
you know, I almost had a had a rebirth because of COVID. I I know that I was languishing even before the pandemic hit us. Um, and whether it's revive or the collaborative work that we do, um, it's given me just this renewed sense of purpose and confidence, and more importantly, joy. Right. Um, and so I wish that for everybody. Priya, thank you very much for joining us today on the Do One Better podcast and and for sharing so much insight about the work you're doing both directly but also through convening and collaborating with others as well. So thank you very much for that. It's been an absolute pleasure hosting you on the show today. And thank you, Alberto. And, you know, um, before the show, I was looking at the 200 podcasts that you've curated, right? Mm. And the fact that you're bringing these outstanding, inspirational individuals from across the world to tell their stories and, um, you know, just sort of inspire and motivate so many and tens of thousands of us. So thank you for the work that you do. Perfect. And that's a wrap. Thanks very much for tuning in. As always, you've been listening to a great chat with Priya Naik, founder and chief executive officer of Samhita. For information about this conversation and more than 200 other case studies and interviews with remarkable thought leaders in philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship, just visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I.org. Please click that subscribe button and follow us if you're not doing so already. And do leave us a rating and a review. It helps others to find the show as well. Thoroughly enjoyed producing today's show for you, and I'll catch you this coming Monday.